All right, good evening, everyone. Let, uh, let us begin. So welcome to our weekly Tehillim Shir. I want to begin first by thanking the sponsors of tonight's Shir to thank the Engelsberg, Dinovitzer, and Steinberg families for sponsoring this entire semester of the Shir. Le'ilui Nishmas, Harav Yitzchak, David, Ben-Meir, Aryeh, Zichron, Levracha. We hope that in the merit of our Tamar Torah, the Neshama will have an Aliyah and the family in Nechama. We also thank our Shir sponsors for tonight, the Enten, Wiesenfeld, Abramson, Fogel, and Haber families for dedicating the Shir tonight commemoration of Zaydi Green's yard site. We hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Neshama will have an Aliyah and the family in Nechama. I also want to draw your attention that really thanks. We, have, uh, we are blessed, Baruch Hashem in our shul, with an exceptionally creative and fantastically talented office staff, our executive director, Shani Tapper, our office manager, Michal Weisberg, and we have beautiful Tehillim notebooks. This seems like an infomercial. These are available. These are available. How much are they? Five dollars. They're five dollars. Again, a beautiful. First of all, it happens to be beautiful. And I could not move this design in any of my men's shiurim. So we have to sell this here. It's a limited population. But thank you to Shani and thank you to Michal. Beautiful idea. A wonderful way. Merit Hashem to take, to keep track of the notes in Merit Hashem for this year. So thank you. Okay, so let us continue. We are going to spend one more week on Capital Vav. So remember again, we focused for the last two weeks, we're not going to go through an entire Chazar, we're not going to do an entire review, but remember again, in this particular capital, David HaMelech is lamenting illness, sickness. So we discussed, is the illness, the sickness, a metaphor for Galus? Is the illness or sickness not a metaphor at all, but actually, again, a reference to the sickness and the illness that David HaMelech experienced in the aftermath with the sin of Bathsheba. Again, we, we went through all the different pieces concerning that. What I want to draw your attention to tonight is one possible, which I think is one of the most dramatic psukim in the entire capital, in the entire chapter, and that's Pasuk Zion, verse 7. I underlined it for you on your sheet. David HaMelech says, Yagati ba'an chasi. Literally translated, I am weary from my sighing. Which is such a profound statement. Yagati ba'an chasi. I'm so tired of being tired. I'm so tired of being spent. I'm just so tired of everything I have to deal with. Which literally means I drench my bed every night. So it's two pieces. I drench my bed every night. What do I, how do I drench my bed? With my tears. Literally translated, I wet my couch with my tears. So there's two things happening in this particular Pasuk. Davra Malach really portraying uh, almost like an image of profound exhaustion, where a person reaches the end of their rope, a person reaches the end of the line, there's nothing more. Welcome. Nice to see you. Welcome. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, Halalai, we should be zochet to join you in Eretz Yisrael. Wonderful to have you back. So David HaMelech over here is highlighting the idea, number one, number one, that I'm exhausted. I'm just, I'm just spent. I don't think I could do this anymore. So there's an exhaustion. That's the first part. Yagati ba'an chasi. I'm tired of sighing. I'm tired. Remember again, the sigh over here is not a complaint. The powerful part about David HaMelech, the Davidic personality, David HaMelech was not a complainer. Now, David HaMelech talks about the challenges of his life a lot. But remember again, there are two reasons why people talk about their challenges. The first reason people talk about their challenges is to complain. That's the first reason, right? That's the first reason. 
The second reason is, remember again, we spoke about the power of Sefer Tehillim, is that it's Lahav Dil Davar HaMelech's therapy session. See, Davar HaMelech teaches us that sometimes the way to address things is to talk about them. Right? It's, you know, often in life, there's like so much stuff swirling around in my neshama, and, and I, I just, I don't know what to make of everything. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. So Davar HaMelech says, talk it out. And David HaMelech says, talk it out with the greatest confidant a Jew has in life. And that's HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Talk to the Ribbono Shal Olam. Tell them what's on your mind. Tell them what you're struggling with. Not as a complaint. But you could complain to God also. That's okay also. But as the way of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I need to sort all of this out. So I'm tired of being tired, of time being spent, and then tears. But David HaMelech is not just talking about any tears. He's giving this image, he's giving this image, sorry, he's giving this image of drenching his pillow, drenching his bed with tears, a torrent of tears, a downpour of tears. So David HaMelech goes on, he says, David HaMelech goes on and he says, we'll just use the little translation over here, my eye is dimmed from anger, it has aged because of all my adversaries. So this is interesting, because we've gone from being tired, sighing, to crying sadness, to anger, which is a fascinating emotional evolution, right? And if you think about it, it actually mirrors how many of us deal with different situations in life. First, I'm overwhelmed. First, I'm overwhelmed, right? And again, and that overwhelming, that overwhelming kite takes the form of that's the sighing. Then I'm sad. I'm upset that I'm sad that this is my circumstance. Those are the tears. And then I'm angry. I'm angry. Why why is this happening to me? Why is this my lot in life? Why do I have to deal with that? And of course, often the corollary to that is, why do I have to deal with that? And others don't seem to have any of these same issues. So you see this emotional evolution of David Amalek, which is quite profound. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that in Psukim Zayin and Ches, David HaMelech is making reference to the eyes, right? He speaks about crying, right? Crying, the dema, the tears come from his eyes. So ultimately, again, there's, there's uh, this tears coming from my eyes. And then in Pasuk Ches, my eyes are dimmed from anger. So David HaMelech here is highlighting something incredibly profound, which is, my vision has been distorted. My vision has been distorted. You know, when you're crying, when you're crying, so your vision is blurry. And when you're angry, you often don't see things the way they should be seen. David HaMelech is saying, as a result of my difficulties, trials and travails, I know that I don't see the world in a normal way. You see, you ever have a situation where you see something, you know how you're interpreting it, but you're also self-aware enough to know this is not the correct interpretation. Right? I know that the way I see this and the way I'm internalizing, the way I'm interpreting it, I know it's not right. I'm still going to do it because I'm just not in a good place right now. So I am, I am, you know, my ocular intake, the way I'm seeing this, I know is distorted, but nevertheless, it's the way that I see it. And in this incredible moment of self-awareness, David HaMalach says, I'm pretty sure I have a distorted view of the world. And I'm pretty sure I have a distorted view of people. In fact, if you take a look at number two, and I have to thank Mrs. Engelsberg, who gave me a beautiful volume of Tehillim called the Koran Tehillim, with a commentary by Rev. Eli Kashtan, who I think is a family member. My 
Zingelsberg. Uncle, be- a beautiful commentary. It's also beautiful because it's purple and it's perfect because now I have purple on my bookshelf, which is wonderful. Fill out the color scheme. So, so, the, so he writes over here, of Kashan says something very beautiful. He says, our eyes become our most poignant organ. They become clouded. Our vision fades, becoming effete. He was English, right? Was he English? Yeah, so he doesn't speak our kind of American English, right? So effete, the word, the word effete, it was good. Effete means to become aware of something, right? Becoming aware, becoming effete, right? And worn with age. We are panicked lest our eyes decay and decompose, failing us completely. What David HaMelech is highlighting over here is the most dangerous thing in life is when you don't see life as it really is. When you have distorted vision. Now the truth is, no one goes out actively trying to acquire distorted vision in life. But what often happens is as a result of the events of life, our vision becomes distorted on a very simple level. Right? I would venture to say that all of us have had negative interactions with people. So what happens after you have negative interactions with people? It colors the way you see people, just in general. And not just that one person who you had a negative interaction with, right? Everyone, that, that's the nature of life. You're hurt by someone, right? Someone takes advantage of you. Someone betrays you. By definition, you see people in general differently. And as much as we like to say, no, you have to have belief in humanity, belief in people, that's what life does to you. Every single time you're knocked down in life, or every single time you suffer a setback or an adversity, your vision becomes impaired. Is it possible to recover from that? Of course, of course. This goes back to last week's share. Just like change is always possible, it just may not be probable. Can you go ahead and reset your life vision? Of course you can. So look what's happening over here. David HaMelech says on one hand, you know, David HaMelech was the king of optimism, right? There was, there, was no, there, there, was no, there was no more optimistic personality. I have to say, like, if you had to rank the top two optimistic personalities in the history of Klal Yisrael, it would have been David HaMelech and Rabbi Akiva. Then, of course, there are a number of number two. Sari Imenu was an incredible optimist. Like the truth is, all of the emos were incredible optimists. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, again, we are a people of optimism. But when you want to talk about the paradigmatic example of optimism, it's David HaMelech. Because no matter how overwhelming the capital is, the ending is always the same. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be okay. Like we spoke about, I'm going to get through this. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what, but I know I'm going to be okay. But yet, even the paradigmatic optimist says, my circumstances have changed me. They've just They've changed me. I see the world differently. And remember, David HaMelech, we, spoke, we speak about this every year. David HaMelech was so brutalized and was so terribly mistreated. I don't mean by the surrounding Gentile nations. I mean like by his own nation, by his own people, so terribly mistreated. So David HaMelech says, you know, as much as I want to believe in people, see the best in people, always give people the benefit of the doubt, when you're constantly beaten down, it takes its toll on the way you see the world. And it's just difficult to go ahead and really see the beauty in life, the beauty in people, the beauty in yourself after you suffer so many dramatic setbacks. So David Amalek is saying, my vision is cloudy with tears. My vision is clouded with anger. I don't see the world. I don't see people. And I don't see myself for what it is now. David Amalek's greatness 
is that he realized that his vision was compromised, which is incredible because all too often in life, our vision is compromised. We just don't know it. We just don't know. You know, it's, it's like a half deal. You ever know someone who's colorblind but doesn't know they're colorblind? Right? It actually could be a lot of fun, right? Because again, when they think they're getting dressed up and they think they put together a wonderful ensemble and then they walk out and you're like, what? Like, what, 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 what happened over here? See, if a person knows they're colorblind, they could say, okay, can you help me match this up? If I don't know that I'm colorblind, I think I'm just fine, but everything is distorted. So David Amalek at least had the benefit of knowing he was colorblind. He knew the vision was distorted. So at least I know if it's distorted, I know that somehow I could compensate. And I thought that this concept really lends itself to this week's parasha because this week's parasha contains what I think is probably one of the most troubling family dynamic stories in all of Tanakh. If you take a look at number three, the Pasuk says, Yaakov Avinu loved Esav. Why? Literally because he put meat, he put food, game in his mouth. And Rivka loved Yaakov. So first of all, you know, whenever there is a biblical story that begins with favorites, one thing is for sure, which is it ends terribly. It always ends terribly. And by the way, that is why the Torah tells us these stories. Torah tells us these stories because it's kind of just like when you grow up and you're with your parents, right? Every, every person who grows up in a family, when you grow up, you say to yourself, okay, there are certain things that I want to do, certain ways in which I want to emulate my parents, and certain things which I will never, ever do in my house. Of course, the irony is we usually end up doing them, but that's, uh, that's a different share, right? So, so the Torah tells us these stories of family dynamics because... Torah is telling us about some pretty detrimental stuff over here, right? The, mo- the most detrimental is when we get to Yosef, right? Yosef, or I should say Yaakov's favoritism of Yosef. But here you have it. Here you have a story of favoritism. Yitzchak favors, Yitzchak loves. And by the way, this is only the second time the Torah uses the word love. Torah doesn't use the word love too many times. The first time we saw the word love was last week's parasha, when Yitzchak ultimately brings Rivka into Sarah's tent, Vayehab Yitzchak, Yitzchak loved Rivka. First time the word is used. Second time the word is used is Vayehab Yitzchak es Esav. Yitzchak loved Esav. And again, we assume the way the passage reads is Yitzchak loved Esav. What's the rest of that phrase? Yitzchak loved Esav? More than Yaakov. Right? Because the Torah is clearly setting up a contrast. Yitzchak loved Esav. Parentheses more than Yaakov. Verifka Oheves es Yaakov. And Rifka loved Yaakov. So the Mepharshim struggle with this because it's not easy to understand what exactly is unfolding over here. Number one, how could parents play favorites? Okay, we'll discuss that. But number two, what exactly is the dynamic that's unfolding in this home? So Rashi has this idea that Esau was able to fool Yaakov. Esau made himself look pious, even though he wasn't pious. And unfortunately, Yitzchak fell for it. If you take a look at number six, so six is the English paragraph, the, right? The source six is on the bottom, the English paragraph to the side. Rav Hirsch. And Rav Hirsch here says something absolutely amazing. He says, a second factor, which could only have a pernicious effect, was the difference of the feelings of the parents towards the children. Unity and complete agreement of parents in the education and the same feelings of love to all their children, even to those who are not so good. Yay. 
Just those require most of all, even more than those who are physically weak or ill, loving care and consideration and sacrifice. That is the first fundamental condition and cornerstone of every education. So, of, of, of every education. So, what happens just as an aside, Rav Shavshanafal Hirsch has a whole piece here where he discusses how parents have to be a united front, at least in public, right, for their children. For their children. No favorites, set along goals, and the weaker child, the weaker the child, the more love and attention they need to have. But he goes on, but look what he writes. That Isaac's sympathies were more inclined towards Esau's, Rebecca's, Rivka's towards Yaakov, can moreover be explained by the attraction of opposites. This is absolutely incredible. We see Isaac risen up again from death on the altar, preferring to withdraw from the bustle of the world and to live quietly in the proximity of the desert, living at the well of Be'er Lachai Ro'i, away from the busy traffic of men, that Esav's lost the active nature appealed to him and that he perhaps saw in him a force which he had lost could be a support to the home would be quite possible. Rivka, on the other hand, saw in Yaakov, see, saw in Yaakov's whole being a picture of a life unfolding, which in her father's house, she had never had the, remote, the, the remotest idea. So, let me tell you this outside. So, Shana Shara says something amazing. People are drawn to opposites. So, Yitzchak is drawn to Esav. Why? Because Esav was everything that Yitzchak wasn't. Right? Yitzchak wasn't his father, as we'll discuss. Right? We see very little about Yitzchak. Yitzchak, for the most part, after the Akedah, was withdrawn from the world. Who was Esav? Esav was a man, right? Esav was out in the field. Esav, Esav was strong. Esav was brave. Esav was fearless. Yitzchak sees in his oldest son qualities that he, Yitzchak, does not possess. Maybe qualities that he wished he possessed, but he doesn't possess. What does Rivka see in Yaakov? Rivka sees in Yaakov everything that she lacked growing up. Here is a good boy. Yaakov Ishtam Yoshev Olim. He's a simple man dwelling in a tent of spirituality. She sees this. She's drawn to this. So Shamshanafal Hirsch says they're both drawn to opposites. They're both drawn to opposites. So that helps us understand maybe a little bit as to why Yitzchak favored Esav and Rivka favored Yaakov. But the fundamental question about the playing of favorites, right? About Yitzchak Avinu favoring Esav over Yaakov, that fundamental... You ask me, so why isn't the question on Rivka also? Right? Why is the question not as strong on Rivka as it is on Yitzchak? So first of all, it could be that Rivka knew her two children, but even then, she's still playing favorites, right? And according to Rav Hirsch, if that's the case that she knew them, she should have given Esav even more attention, I think the reason why there's... Pam, you're going to say something? Because of what happened to... Because of what happened to Yitzchak. Like, what do you mean? Right. True, true also. Very true. Very true. I, very true. I think there's also a simpler idea, which is you could read the Pasuk as a progression. You see, when the Pasuk says, Vayehav Yitzchak is Esav, Yitzchak loved Esav. So Yitzchak staked his favorite territory out first. Esav is the favorite. What does a mother do? Right? What does a mother do? A mother always goes where the need is most acute. Right? Remember again, the mother is the familial first aid kid. So where there's a problem, that's where the mother is. That's where the mother is. 
So when Rivka, perhaps, when Rivka sees that Yitzchak has favored Yaakov, sorry, that Yitzchak has favored, sorry, that Yitzchak had favored Esav, by definition, she has to balance the scales. So if the oldest son is getting all of the attention of his father, and the younger son is going to be left without it, I have to compensate. The mother has to compensate for what she perceives is the lack of attentiveness that her younger son is getting from his father, from Yitzchak. So when we're going to look at the question, we're really going to focus on Yitzchak. How is it that Yitzchak plays favorites? So again, I understand Rav Hirsch says why perhaps Yitzchak is a little bit more innately drawn to Esau and Rivka is drawn to Yaakov. But Yitzchak, what's your cheshben? Right? What are you thinking? Why, 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 why are you setting your family up this way? So I'll show you something amazing. If you take a look at number seven. So the Torah says as follows. Let me give you a little bit of introduction. Yitzchak, right? We have three of us. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Yitzchak is the Ab. Yitzchak is the patriarch about whom we know the least about. Remember again, we know virtually nothing about Yitzchak, right? We could count on one hand the things we know about Yitzchak. Number one, the Akedah, right? Number two, he he resettled because of famine. And number three, he dug wells. He dug wells. And in fact, the greatest amount of attention or the, the the greatest coverage of any event in Yitzchak Avinu's life is all about the wells. The Torah goes, and this is all of source number seven. The Torah goes into incredible detail, well after well. But it's the same story. He digs a well, enemies fill in the well, he redigs the well, they make treaties, well after well after well after well. Finally, we get to Be'er Sheva, the seventh well, right? Well after well after well. So in general, in general, when you see the Torah spend so much time on details that don't seem to be all that significant, it raises, it raises our attention, right? What's, what's going on over here? And this is the dominant feature that the Torah tells about you. Remember again, think about this in just a moment. You know, we think that we know the Avos and the Maos so well, but we don't. They are incredibly mysterious personalities. The Torah gives us kind of little windows into their lives, but we don't know them. Well, right, the Medrash fills in a little bit more, but especially Yitzchak, especially Yitzchak, a miracle child, born to a 90-year-old mother, a 100-year-old father, right? We go from his birth, remember, we go from birth to where? We go from birth to 30, right? To Akedah, right? We go from birth to 30, then by the time we go out and we get to Parashas, then by the time we get to Parashas, told us Yitzchak is 60. So pretty much 60 years of Yitzchak's life is in about one chapter, one parak of Chumash, Right? And then the rest, by the end of this parasha, already Yitzchak Avinu has died. Right? He's already buried by his sons. And all we know are about wells. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says something so beautiful in number eight. And the Rebbe says, if you take a look in the second paragraph, he says, So the Rebbe asks this question. He says, why is it that the Torah Kedosha spends so much time on the digging of wells? And the Rebbe says something so beautiful. He says, because Yitzchak's avoda in life, you know, each of the avos and the maos not only personified a particular trait, but they also had a particular avoda, a particular form of service. What was Yitzchak's form of service? Digging wells. Yitzchak was the well digger. Well, what, so what does that mean? So the Rebbe says something amazing. He says, let me tell you this outside. 
The Rebbe Selavavcha says something absolutely magnificently beautiful. Even if you take nothing else from this year, it's worth it to have this piece. The Rebbe says, how do you dig a well? How do you dig a well? Right? What do you have to do? In my extensive welding experience, right? You have to remove a lot of layers of dirt. A lot of layers of dirt. But if you're willing to keep digging, you'll find beautiful, pristine, thirst-quenching, restorative water. And says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, isn't that an incredible metaphor for life? Because so often, I am covered by layers of dirt. I'm covered by layers upon layers of my life mistakes, my life missteps. I'm just covered by so much life schmutz. And so often, I just assume that that dirt defines me. That's who I am. That's what it is. What am I? I'm dirt. I'm dirt. All right. We offer atobel, offer toshuv. I'm dirt. There's so many layers of dirt that over time I become convinced there's nothing beneath the dirt. So the Torah says, Lubavitch Rebbe goes out of its way to speak about Yitzchak Avinu teaches us the power of digging wells. That if you go ahead and you are resolute and you are committed to continue digging, you will reach your personalistic water. That water represents the neshama. That water represents the inner purity. That water represents the goodness, the beauty, the spiritual holiness, the spiritual luminescence that each of us possess. And it doesn't matter how many layers of dirt I've accumulated over the years, that water of holiness is still there. That, says the Rebbe, is, was the avoda of Yitzchak Avinu. To clear away the dirt and to find the water. The Rebbe goes on, he says, He says, Yitzchak Avinu took away our excuse. A person can never say, I have no ability to access my soul. Right? The light of my soul is too diminished. It's gone. It's been extinguished. There's nothing for me to find. He says, teaches us that no matter how much dirt you have over your spiritual waters, dig, 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 and you will find your personalistic holiness. It may take a while, right? Sometimes there's a lot of layers. And by the way, sometimes you have to bring in heavy machinery. Right? Sometimes you can't just dig it out by yourself. Sometimes you have to enlist the help of other people. Right? Sometimes there is just too much dirt for one person to haul away. But if you're committed to digging, you will find your personalistic water. And this, says the Rebbe, was the avoda of Yitzchak Avinu. And this is why the Torah Kedosha spends so much time, again, the dominant theme in Yitzchak Avinu's life is the digging of wells because Yitzchak teaches us sift through your dirt and find your waters of holiness. Now watch this. Rav Levi Yitzchak Abreditchev in number nine echoes a similar idea. And he says something quite beautiful. He quotes the Pasuk, going back to the Pasuk that we saw before. Vayehav Yitzchak is Esav. Why did Esav love, sorry, why did Yitzchak love Esav? Kitsayid Befiv. Now, Kitsayid Befiv, literally, the way Rashi translates is Kitsayid means game, right? Hunting, Befiv. That Yitzchak loved Esav because Esav kept his father well fed. Remember again, Esav is the father of Amalek. What is it that fuels Amalek throughout the generations? What's what, what schus? 
Because you have to have a schos to conquer Klal Yisrael, to vanquish Klal Yisrael. What's the schos? What merit does Amalek have? What, what merit does Amalek have to be able to have an upper hand over Klal Yisrael at different times this year? What, what merit? The kibud av of Esav. That's how powerful the kibud av of Esav was. It's that one mitzvah that fuels the entirety of Amalek. Just as an aside, by the way, I'll tell you something amazing. This is why in Megillah Sester, in Megillah Sester, the Megillah says, Vahi omen es hadasa ki ein la'av va'im. Right? Which literally means that Mordechai raised Hadassa because she was an orphan, for she did not have a father and a mother. So obviously if she's an orphan, she doesn't have a father and a mother. And the Zohar says something absolutely amazing. Esther was about to have her showdown with Haman, Amalek. So how do you conquer Amalek? Well, Amalek is fueled by Kibar Avve'im. So the only way to beat Amalek is to be better in Kibar Avve'im. The problem, says the Zohar, is that no one was better than Esau. No one was ever better than Esau. But there's one exception. You see, Esther was an orphan. So she was unable to perform the mitzvah of kibbut avvaim in a physical sense. All she could do was to yearn and to pine to perform the mitzvah. And there is nothing more profound than the yearning of a Jew. That's why Esther Hamalka, the orphan, that's why she was able to conquer and to vanquish the kibbut av of Esau of Amalek. So Kitzayid Befiv, Esau kept his father well fed. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak says, no, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Look what the Rabbi says in number nine. This is absolutely incredible. You know, what does a tzaddik love more than anything? What a tzaddik loves more than anything is to allow trapped holiness to rise up, right? Without getting into a whole course in Hasidus, but one of the tenets of Hasidus is that there are nitzotzos, there are sparks of holiness everywhere in this world. But sometimes those sparks become covered by shells, what we call klipos, right? Shells of impurity. And the job of the tzaddik, the job of the righteous person, is to remove the klipos, to remove the shells, and allow the sparks to rise up, allows the sparks to become visible. How is the tzaddik able to go ahead and remove the shells and allow the sparks of holiness to ascend? With the tzaddik's Torah, his learning, with his tefillah, and as we're also going to see with just his pleasant conversation. It's with his mouth that the tzaddik is able to remove the klipos. So get ready for this. Listen to what Rabbi Yitzchak says. You see, by the way, just the beauty in Hasidus is that you could choose to put the punctuation wherever you want in the Pasuk, right? So the way Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Abraditcha reads the Pasuk is like this. Vayehav Yitzchak es Esav kitzayit. Why did Yitzchak love Esav? Because he saw that within Esav there was trapped holiness. Tzayit means trapped. He saw within his oldest son, you see the Rebbe says, Yitzchak, everybody likes to paint this picture of like Yitzchak being oblivious to who, to who Esav was. Yitzchak knew exactly who Esav was. He knew what Esav was doing and he knew what Esav wasn't doing. Esav was not pulling a fast one on his father. But even though Yitzchak knew exactly who Esav was, he loved him. Do you know why he loved him? Kitzayid. Because he saw that in this Bechar, in this young man, 
is so much holiness that is trapped, that is sitting in there waiting to be released. How are you going to release it? Befiv, with his mouth. Yitzchak Avinu says the Rabbi every day, Davin for Esav. Yitzchak Avinu every day learned Torah with Esav. And Yitzchak every day engaged his son in conversation with the hope if I daven for him, if I learn with him, and if I verbally express my love for him, maybe that trapped holiness will finally be free. Esav will self-actualize and become the person he is truly capable of becoming. An incredible and groundbreaking idea. And this by the fits with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Because remember again, what, what, what's Yitzchak's thing, right? What's Yitzchak's avoda? What's his whole avoda in life? What's all avoda? Digging wells. Yitzchak is all about digging wells. Yitzchak is all about removing the dirt and getting to the beautiful personalistic waters of holiness and spiritual luminescence. And that avoda doesn't start in the field. That avoda, that work for Yitzchak Avinu begins in his home. Vayehav Yitzchak is Esav Kitsayid, my Bechar, my firstborn, I love you. I know who you are. I know what you're doing when you're out of the house. I know exactly what you're up to. You're not pulling anything on me. But I love you because I see beneath all of that dirt, there is so much spiritual beauty that is trapped, that is waiting to come out, that is just waiting to come out. And I'm convinced that if I daven for you, learn with you, and just engage you verbally, talk to you, tell you that I love you, keep you close, those klipos, those shells will go away. And the sparks of your holiness will become visible, not only to anyone else, but to yourself. And now, but there's one more piece to this. Because if we go back a little bit to the end of last week's parasha, so remember again, just to give you the context, Eliezer is bringing back Rivka. Right, so the Torah kind of gives us like a, like a split screen, right? There's Eliezer coming back with Rivka, and as he's coming back, the Torah tells us what Yitzchak is doing. So what was Yitzchak doing? Remember, he knows Eliezer's coming back with a bride, right? That's why Eliezer went, and Yitzchak is going to assume that Eliezer's going to be successful. So he's waiting for Eliezer to return. And what is Yitzchak doing while Eliezer is on his way back? So the Torah says in number 10, the Yitzchak bo, 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 mi bo be'er lachairoi, very interesting. So the Torah tells us that Yitzchak came from Be'er Lachai Roi. So he came Be'er Lachai Roi. And now he's out in the field, conversing in the field, waiting for Eliezer to come back. Okay. Who cares where Yitzchak's coming from? In other words, what, 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 is, what does that matter? Why does the Torah have to tell me that Yitzchak came back from Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Sounds familiar, that name, right? Because we saw it before. Take a look at number 11. Going back even a little bit further. Parshas Lech Lecha. Vayomer Lamalach Hashem. So remember, what's the story over here? The story over here is, the story over here is, that, that Hagar was sent away. Hagar was sent away. And ultimately, again, she's told, you're going to have a son, Yishmael, right? But I want to tell you something very interesting. You know, last week we spoke about Yishmael. Hagar already knew from the beginning, it seems to be, she already knew, that Yishmael wasn't going to grow up in Avram Avinu's home. Because even if you look at number 11, it says, the Malachs, remember, this was the first time Hagar was expelled 
from the home, right? Hagar miscarries her first pregnancy, right? So she's expelled from the home because Soyaminu felt that she, Sarah felt that she was being mistreated by Hagar. Hagar's expelled by the home. She encounters the angel and the angel tells her, don't worry, go back to Avram. You're going to become pregnant and you're going to have a son. You're going to call him Yishmael. He's going to be a wild man. And he's going to live with all of his brethren. So Vatikra Hashem so interestingly enough, who named it Be'er Lachai Ro'i? Ultimately, again, Hagar. What is the name? Be'er is a well. Lachai Ro'i to the everlasting or, or ever living God. So Be'er Lachai Ro'i is where the birth of Yishmael was announced, was announced, and ultimately, where Hagar is told that Ishmael is not really going to grow up in the home of Avram Avinu. Not only that, not only that, but remember again, then Hagar and Yishmael are ejected from the home a second time. Right? They go back to the same place, to Be'er Lachai Roi. That's where they go back. Now, remember again, take a look at number 12. So, okay, just, I know we have a lot of things going on over here. So remember, Be'er Lachai Roi, birth of Yishmael. Not only that, same place where they went back the second time. Where you shall, now remember again, I didn't put it on the sheet, but you remember, actually I did put it on the sheet. Look at number 13. Remember again when they're set, when Hagar and Yishmael are, 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 are ejected again from the home, they go back to Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Yishmael is dying. Yishmael is dying. What does Hagar do? Number 13, we'll come back to 12 in just a second. Vayichlu hamayim minachemes, vatashleich es hayeled, tachas achad hasichim. Hagar cannot watch her son die, so she puts him underneath one of the bushes and she sits across, okay? Where does all of this happen? Where does all of this happen? Be'er l'chai ro'i. Where is Yitzchak coming back from in Parshas Chai right before he meets his Bashet, right before he meets Rivka? Where is he coming, where is he coming back from? Be'er l'chai ro'i. What does he do when he's coming back from Be'er l'chai ro'i? Now we're all familiar, Lasuach Basada, the Mepharshim translate as Sicha Lashon Tfila, he davened, right? He davened Mincha. But the Radak says that's not what it means. Lasuach Basada, Kilomar, Letayel Bein Hasichin. What is Yitzchak doing? He's walking between the bushes. So look what's happening over here. Yitzchak Avinu is about to get married. He's about to get married. And he's Emir Hashem, hopeful that he's going to get to start a family. So where does he spend his time in the moments before meeting his Kala? He's in Be'er Lachai Ro'i. And what is he doing in Be'er Lachai Ro'i? He's walking amongst the bushes. And perhaps what's unfolding over here is something absolutely amazing. Yitzchak Avinu is walking the steps of his half-brother Yishmael. And he went to the place where Yishmael was rejected from the family. And he went to the bushes, where Yishmael was laying there, about to die, were it not for divine intervention. And perhaps what Yitzchak Avinu is doing right before he begins to build his own home, is he makes a solemn promise. What happened in my father's home will not happen in my home. I know what it's like to grow up in a home where one son is chosen, one son is rejected. I know what it's like to grow up in a home where there's the good son 
and there's the bad son. Remember, Yitzchak is the good son, right? He's the one without the baggage, right? He's the good son. He's the good son. Yitzchak Avinu says, I know what it's like. I know what the tension is like in a family like that. And going back to last week's year, I know what it's like for a father when he has to say goodbye to one of his children who he doesn't really want to say goodbye to. And perhaps what the Torah is alluding to in a very nuanced fashion over here is right before Yitzchak meets Rivka and they are about to build their family together, Yitzchak makes himself a solemn promise. Walking in Be'er Lachai walking by the bushes, this will not happen in my family. This won't happen to me. There won't be one chosen son, one rejected son. Everyone is chosen. Everyone is beloved. Everyone is part of the mission. Everyone is part of the familial narrative. And so something amazing happens over here. That when the Torah tells us, the Yitzchak, oh hey, this, the Yitzchak, I'm sorry, we lost on the Pasuk, the Yehab Yitzchak is Esav, Kitzayid Befiv. There's so much unfolding in that phrase. It's yes, like Rabbi Yitzchak says, Yitzchak loves Esav. Why? Because at the end of the day, he sees so much trapped holiness. And Yitzchak is unwilling to give up on Esav. Why? Because Yitzchak is a well digger. Like the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, just dig through the dirt. The water is there. The holiness is there. Don't give up on him. Just keep digging and digging and digging. But you want to know what really drives Yitzchak more than anything? I love my father. And I love my mother. But my home is not going to be like theirs. Or I should say differently. My home will be very much like theirs in many respects. But one thing is going to be different in my home. Everyone's chosen. Everyone is chosen. Everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone is beloved and everyone is appreciated for who they are. So what happens? I'm sorry. Oh, hold on. We're not finished. We're not finished. I have 10 minutes. Right? So, so now watch this. Now watch this. So what's amazing about this is Yitzchak Avinu convinced himself that things have to be a certain way. And he convinced himself, this is the way that it is. So where's the disconnect in the parasha? Where's the disconnect? That the way Yitzchak wanted things to be and the way they actually were, were two different things. But Yitzchak wouldn't see it. You know, Chazal speak out this idea, Yitzchak was blind, physically blind, but Chazal understand in his physical blindness to be a certain level of familial blindness as well. You see, Yitzchak convinced himself that things have to be this way. Everyone's chosen, everyone's beloved, everyone's on the team, we all move forward together. And he convinced himself that this is the way it has to be. And he created a vision, but was unwilling to see if that vision aligned with reality. I'm going to tell you something that is forever going to change your life. It is one of the most dramatic insights by Rav Shamshin Fall Hirsch on the entire Chumash. And I want to tell you, many jump on Rav Hirsch for this because it's an incredible novel idea, but it's Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch has something amazing. You know, in this week's parasha, it's destroyed the stealing of the brachas. Right, so we know, you know the story, right? Rivka tells Yaakov, listen, your brother went out to the field, go put on his clothing, go in and steal brachas. What, what is that? Right? First of all, you can't steal brachas. Right? It doesn't work. We know again, we know Yaakov Avinu only gets the brachas actually later on. After Yitzchak realizes what happened, and then he says, Gam Baruch Yehiyeh. He says, Yaakov should be blessed. That's when Yaakov gets it. You can't steal brachas. Are you kidding? If you could steal brachas, my gosh. 
be busy the whole day stealing brachas, right? You can't steal brachas. You can't steal brachas. And Rivka Yemenu knew you can't steal brachas. So listen to what Rav Hirsch says, an incredible chiddish. Rav Hirsch said, for years, for years, Rivka was telling Yitzchak, you're wrong about Esav. I love him too. He's my son also. Remember at the end of the parasha, the Torah calls Rivka the mother of Yaakov and Esav. And Rashi says, actually I think I put it, did I put it on the sheet? I didn't put it on the sheet. Rashi says, I don't know what this phrase teaches us. Why does I have to say that Rivka is the mother of Yaakov and Esav? So perhaps what the Torah is saying at the end of the story is, don't think that Rivka didn't love Esav. Rivka loved Esav. It's her son. It's her son. The difference was Rivka knew who Esav was. And says of her, for years, she's trying to tell Yitzchak, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm sure she said it nicer than I'm saying, right? <laughs> my beloved Yitzchak, I think you may be incorrect, right? I think you may be misled. She was trying to tell me, you're wrong. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You're wrong. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. Rivka's saying, he's fooling you. He's fooling you. I love him. He's my son. But you don't really know who he is. Says of Hirsch. Do you know why Rivka orchestrated the whole theft of the brachas? Listen to what Hirsch says. To show Yitzchak how easily he can be deceived. See, Rivka did not think. She knew Yaakov was not going to get the brachas by stealing them. But she had to make a dramatic point to her husband. You are refusing to see reality. You have convinced yourself. You have convinced yourself that life is a certain way. You've convinced yourself that Esav is a certain way. You've convinced, you've created this narrative and it has to be this. You know what it's like? It's like Lahavdil. If you were to go ahead and go like in front of the video, like the, the security cameras and you were to take a picture of a beautiful sunny day and you paste that picture right in front of the video camera, right? So you sit down by the monitors, you see the video cameras. Oh, it's beautiful. It's incredible. The sun is always shining. It's gorgeous. This is incredible. No one has weather like Baltimore. Sun's always out. It's fantastic. Sure, because you're not really seeing. You're just looking at one picture and you're not seeing the world as it is. Yitzchak refused to see the world as it was because again, remember now we, but we understand why. It came from such a pure and holy place. It came from the well digger. It came from the Vayahav Yitzchak is Esav Kitzayid. It came from the pain of seeing what it's like to have to send a child away from the home for one son to know that he's chosen and one son to know that he's rejected. And so Yitzchak Avinu says that is not going to happen. There's a new narrative in my home. And Yitzchak did anything and everything he could but it didn't work. But even when it didn't work, he refused to acknowledge the reality. And so Rivka tries to tell him nicely over and over and over, you're wrong. You're wrong. You have to face the reality of who our kids are and who they are not so we could properly parent them together. And Yitzchak won't listen. Says of her, she has no choice but to finally show you can be easily duped. A little bit of furry clothing and a nice tray of meat. And suddenly you can't tell there between Yaakov and Esav. Her plan was never for Yaakov to get the brachas. But her plan was to do something dramatic. So that her husband would finally be willing to confront the reality of what it was that was occurring. Of what it was that was occurring in the family. And now we understand the connection to this capital. Because what's the connection between this episode and David HaMelech? Yitzchak Avinu and David HaMelech? A very strong connection. See, Yitzchak Avinu didn't want to see the world for what it was. Or I should say, not the world. He didn't want to see his son.
for what it is. He wanted, he had an image of what he believed his son to be. And that was the image he wanted to keep. And even when there were things going on that chipped away and eroded that image, he was unwilling to pivot. He was unwilling to adopt the realistic outlook and perspective on who Esav was. And David HaMelech describes this dynamic of having altered vision. David HaMelech says, I too can't see the world for what it is. I can't see. my, My eyes are blurred with my tears. My eyes are blurred with my anger. The connection between these two episodes is so acute that sometimes as a result of the events of life, our vision becomes impaired. What impairs our vision? Well, you could look. For Yitzchak Avinu, it was the trauma of living through a separation with Yishmael. For David HaMelech, it was a whole bunch of different life traumas and adversities. And sometimes as a result of those difficulties, we don't see the world for what it is. We don't see the world for what it is. We don't see ourselves for who we really are. And we don't see others for who they are. Over the course of life, it's natural. It's natural for our vision to become impaired. And we see even great people, David HaMelech, Yitzchak Avinu, have impaired vision. So what do you do? And I, I think I find this to be such an incredible yisod because I think it impacts many of us. And I think like, you know, often we think we see reality. You know, the, the Mishnah Perki Avas says, talking to the judge, that when the judge, right, when the litigants become before you, it's an amazing Mishnah. The Mishnah says, when the Bali Din, when the litigants come before you, the Mishnah tells the judge, view them as if they are both guilty, as if they're both liars. So the Maral of Prague says, wow, that sounds so morose. Shouldn't say, maybe they're both innocent. Okay, so two people can't be innocent. The Maral says something amazing. He says, just always understand no one's ever going to tell you objective truth. They're going to tell you subjective truth. Right? None of us possess objective truth. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu possesses objective truth. We possess subjective truth. So when I tell the truth, I tell the truth as I understand it. When I see something in this world, I see it as I understand it. And these eyes have been through a lot. And this person has been through a lot. And as such, the lens through which I see the world may not be the correct lens. The lens in which I see myself, how many of us walk around with a sense of diminished self-worth, a sense of diminished self-importance, maybe because of mistakes we've made in the past and we think we're damaged goods, or how many of us have had falling out with other people or, or whatever difficult, turbulent relationships and it's soured the way either we look at particular people or we look at all people and our vision gets damaged. David HaMelech says, I know I can't see the world for what it is. Yitzchak Avinu is forced to acknowledge, I cannot see the world for what it is. So what do you do if your eyesight is impaired? So what do you do if your knowledge is impacted? So we'll have to say this for a different share. But I'll tell you something really important. You know, Stephen Covey, in his uh, seven, Seven Effective Habits, right? So what's the name of the book? Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. So in the beginning of the book, he, he tells a story. He tells a story that I think is so incredibly profound. He talks about that he was once riding on a train in New York. And it was an early Sunday morning. 
and he, you know, the, there's this guy on the train, there's this guy on the train, and he's there with a bunch of little kids, and the kids are running up and down the train. And Kavi writes, you know, he was commuting for work, he just wanted to relax, and the kids are running, making noise, it's early in the morning, and then they get a bit more rambunctious, they start pulling newspapers out of people's hands, and Kavi says to himself, like, what is the matter with this guy? Father's sitting there, he's falling asleep, what a chutzpah! Watch your kids, right? We've all had those watch your kids moments, right? Why can't you watch over your kids moments? So Kavi decides that he's finally going to go over to the guy. He says, guy, listen, you got to watch your kids. And the man like wakes up, startled, said, I'm so sorry. He said, we just came from the hospital. My wife just passed away. The kids, everybody's a little bit in shock. I'm in shock. I don't know what to do. I truly apologize. And Kavi says, in that moment, he experienced what he calls a paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift is when you recognize that the way you see the world may not be correct. May not be correct. And I have to take a step back and be willing to look at things through a different lens. The Torah is filled with stories of people who are courageous enough to undergo a paradigm shift. Of people who are courageous enough to say, I've always looked at the world this way. I've always looked at myself this way. I've always looked at people this way. And it could be I'm wrong. So I need to take a step back, paradigm shift, reorient. You see, for Kavi, the paradigm shift was easy because he realized the error, the mistake, and he was able to switch his, he was able to switch his thinking. Sometimes in life, I know that my vision is compromised, but I don't yet know what it is that I have to switch to or how I have to adjust but how important in life it is to be open to the paradigm shift, to the willingness to say, just because I see it a certain way does not necessarily mean that that is the unequivocal truth. To be open to the fact that even people who do bad things are not necessarily bad people through and through. Maybe they did something to hurt me. And maybe as a result of that, I really dislike them. And as a result, I have a perception of them that they're bad. Be willing to readjust your perceptions. Because if you're going to walk around locked into that perception, you may be wrong. And if you're wrong, if you're wrong, you're carrying around that baggage for a very long time. And again, you plug this into everything. How we feel about ourselves, how we feel about others, how we feel about life. You know, sometimes people walk around. I always, okay, then I'll conclude. I'm always jealous of people who walk around self-assured, right? There are people who like, they have everything figured out. Everything figured out. They, they know everything, right? They know why this one does this. Everything figured out. And I used, I, I, there was a time where I was very jealous of people because I am not a self-assured person. I, I constantly second guess everything, everything and think about it. And, and then I realized they're being done to be jealous of because more often than not, those people who are so self-assured are more often than not fundamentally wrong, right? What they've done is they lock themselves into a life vision because it's comfortable to lock yourself in and not have to worry about anything. So they get locked in they think they have it figured out. They remain rooted in the same vision of themselves, of people, of the world for the rest of their lives. Maybe some of them are right, but I venture to say most of them are wrong because the key to successful living is a paradigm shift. The key to successful living is a willingness to say, I've seen things a certain way up until now, but I realize that my vision may be compromised and I want to find the courage to look at life, to look at myself in a different way. 
David HaMelech had that courage. Yitzchak Avinu had that courage. And may we be Zohar Hashem to find that courage as well. Even if we have looked at ourselves, even if we've looked at life, and even if we've looked at others through the same lens throughout all the years we've been on this earth, find the courage to take a step back, to entertain the possibility of a paradigm shift. Open up yourself to different ways of potentially seeing the world, and you never know what you will find. Yitzchak Avinu embraces the new perception of Esav, and by the way, as a result, he's able to be a better father to Esav and a better father, and a better father to Yaakov. David HaMelech embraces the fact that his vision has been tarnished, but because he recognizes that it's impacted, he finds the ability to start over again and once again cultivate an unbridled sense of optimism and hope. If Yitzchak could do it, if David HaMelech can do it, then Amir Hashem, we should be zochet to do it as well. Let's stop over here. Amir Hashem, next week we will continue with Kapitel Zion.